if you're a fan of Star Trek, then you already know about the Inglorious Trexperts. But maybe you don't know about the 430 movie, where at least two of us are on it, and we also have Ashley Miller and Steve Melching, and we talk about movies, movies that you'll probably like if you watch them. So give it a chance. Need to make a call? Look for a police call box. That's where you'll find Two on Who, the new Doctor Who podcast from Electric Surge. Two on Who is available wherever you listen to podcasts. You must learn to listen to the rebel and the rogue, or you will not be allowed to come with me to Alderaan. Hey, this is Mark A. Altman, and if you're a fan of the only gentleman secret agent with a license to kill and thrill, you should pick up my new James Bond oral history, Nobody Does It Better, available now in hardcover, audio, and digital, wherever books are sold. Do you expect me to read? No, I expect you to buy it. Hey, this is Mark A. Altman. And this is Darren Dockerman, and we are the Inglorious Trexperts. And yes, it's another great show. I know I'm prone to hyperbole, but this is truly <laughs> a fantastic... Why is this a fantastic show? I mean, you know, I don't normally get intimidated by our guests, but in this case I am because he's also the host of a podcast. So he's going to be <laughs> judging us. He's, uh, he's going to be thinking, nah, that's not how I would do it, you know? Our podcast is a lot more cerebral. We talk about deep subjects, creativity, meeting inspiration, and, uh, you know, he's talked some really interesting um, uh, marine, uh, uh, not biologists, but archaeologists, a marine archaeologist. We'll, we'll talk about that. And, we talk about and, Star and, Trek. You do. Well, he occasionally talks <laughs> about Star Trek, but only because, you know, they're easy to get. You know, he doesn't go to right. the publicist. They're in the dressing room. They knock on the door. <laughs> hey, you know, I want to talk to you for my podcast and the ratings will be up this week. And so I'll get you on. So anyway, the the, 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 the other thing that's really cool, besides the fact that I'm sure we're going to talk about Westerns, which, you know, any excuse for me to talk about Westerns is good. But uh, he's also a Star Trek captain. I don't think we've ever had a Star Trek oh, captain on our true. show. Oh, our really? First, our first that's first. right. I'm because, you know, I've honored. asked Bill, but, you know, I mean, he's like, you know. Uh, Mark, I'm going to tell you one more time. No. <laughs> I mean, you only do movies for me, but you won't do podcasts. Should it be the other way around? That's right. Anyway, so we're thrilled to have uh, with us um, Anson Mount. Anson, welcome to the show. Thanks. Thanks for having me. The Federation's hackles are up. I don't have to remind you that the last time we investigated a previously unknown energy distortion resulted in the Klingon War. These mysterious signals, unlike anything we've encountered, the energy needed to create them is beyond anything we understand. Is it a greeting? A declaration of malice. That's why they put me on the discovery when the Enterprise went down. Nobody wanted to wait to find out. But right now, this little dot is the only one willing to tell us where it is. Helm, plug in the coordinates. Let's pay a visit. Warp Factor 5. Aye, sir. With your permission, Commander Saru. The ship is yours, Captain. All right, then. Hit it.
Yeah, it's great. And, you know, I, I alluded to your podcast, The Well, and uh, where, where do you find the time? Well, it helps that we work in seasons. We don't we don't produce year round, yeah. and um, we need to be. I personally and my my producing partner, we have other things that we want to be doing creatively and work wise. Uh, and it, you know, the way we do our show, it, it's a it's a lot of legwork um, in terms of the, not just the interviews but the editing. We go through several rounds of editing, and that's a lot of work. So it gives us time to build up a group of episodes and make it not quite such a hectic schedule when we do publish. And that's why when I talk about being intimidated, is we tumble, it's live on tape, we're done, right? right? Goes to Bill, Bill does all the heavy lifting, puts it, makes it sound good, and that's the show, we're right? We're just making it up as we go along. They, yeah. He does the interviews, they have composers doing all this music, you know, um, and, 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 you know, there's these sort of deep explorations of, of subjects between him and his his co-host, and, you know, there's clearly a lot of work that goes into it, unlike our podcast. Well, no, so, Darren makes amazing t-shirts. That, right, that, that, <laughs> and mugs. Right, buddy. That, 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 <laughs> we also have Ashley E. Miller here. Oh my we god, we do. Yes, we do. <laughs> I, I completely neglect because you don't have a podcast. You're only a special guest. <laughs> we're, right. we're very lucky to have a writer producer. Um, he wrote such movies as Thor, X Men: First Class. He's been a writer producer on such series as Terminator, The Sarah Connor Chronicles, Lore. Um, uh, Black Sails, Fringe, um, the new show which cannot be mentioned, cannot be uh, but we can say it's for a streaming company that rhymes with Retflix. Yes. And um, we're, so he's excited about that. That's Ashley Miller back on the show. Welcome, Ashley. Uh, the inglorious cousin Oliver. I like to think of myself. No, no. trust I'm me. I'm not the cousin Oliver? No, you're no we Robbie We haven't Rist. jumped that shark yet. <laughs> <laughs> okay. You're no, no Robbie Rist. So look, I want to talk about, I mean, going back you know, I, I'm always fascinated. We talked about this with Nick Meyer, his parents, and how um, they influenced you know his his career growing up uh, with a psychotherapist. And you, if I understand correctly, your dad was an editor for Playboy, and your mom was a professional golfer. Um, interesting combination. What was that like for you? I mean, obviously, growing up in the arts in Tennessee, which is a certain cliche, I think, for those <laughs> of us from, you know, the coast that would say, oh, Tennessee, and, and, you know, such an interesting, uh, such an interesting um, parentage. Uh, can you t tell, what was that like? I mean... Well, it's... There's a lot to unpack there. Um, <laughs> first of all... Tell us about your mother. There were no arts uh, in the part of Tennessee I grew up in. Um, we were in rural Tennessee. We had professional wrestling. Um, that was what I like to call Southern opera. Okay. <laughs> uh, but there was really no outlet for the performing arts. My my father would take me to see opera sometimes, and but in not the Southern Nashville. opera. Not the Southern okay. opera. The real opera. He was a he was a classical music buff. Um, and he would yeah he was the sports writer for Playboy magazine when I was a kid. He was originally the religion editor long ago when they first started. Hmm. Huh. And they were talking more about ethics and the the um, what became the lead up to the sexual revolution. And um, my mother was a former professional golfer. You would think that that had something to do with how they met, right? Uh, but it didn't. <laughs> uh, my father was on a, a speaking engagement. He would he would still go to colleges and universities and and talk about ethics. And he was on a speaking engagement in Kingsport, Tennessee, where my Mother was at the time an assistant golf pro, and uh, she was also working part time 
uh, in a liquor store as the retail manager. And my father went in uh, looking for a bottle of Jack Daniels, took a wrong turn, and the rest is history. <laughs> well, he was a writer. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> that is hysterical. That, that's a great, yeah. you know, now you talk to people, how do you meet Tinder, you know, right? right. It's like, how do they meet? That's a great story. Jack Daniels, right. Yeah, yeah, Jack Daniels <laughs> brought us together. Um, but, uh, you know, it must have been so fascinating because people forget, you know, at the time, you know, Playboy was a very respected, man, I wrote it for the articles, you know, I wrote, read it for the articles. But, um very respected. I mean, they were breaking a lot of stories. They were getting interviews with top-tier people. They that were very talk involved to in the civil rights movement yeah, at the time. Absolutely. I grew up with pictures of Dr. King on the wall, Jesse Jackson. I was just telling somebody earlier today about Jesse Jackson came would come to visit when I was a, a kid and ran into him recently. Um, and just a still a really lovely guy. Um, but yeah, sort of that childhood of sort of growing into the realization that your father is... Um, has done these things, some some very interesting things in Kanda, but still having that rural childhood was very important to me as well. And did your mother after she she had retired from golfing, but I assume she still golf for fun, or is it the... she she stopped uh, she stopped playing professionally for ten years when she had me, and then she went back and became a professional again. Oh wow! Played the tour for a while, but mostly taught. Yeah. And did you, was it something that you did? Did you end up becoming a golfer? Oh, it... God, I'm terrible. <laughs> I, I don't have the patience right, right. for it. And I just don't have that mindset where I'm like, you know what? I think I'm going to take four hours out of my day tomorrow and go hit a ball with a stick and walk after right, it. Right. I just, <laughs> it's just not in my makeup. It's a different era. And I mean, I read or heard, you know, like a lot of golf courses are going out of business for that very reason. But in today's culture people can't you know they used to do business on the golf course now everybody does business by by text and by email and the, the value of these big parcels of land for real estate are so high that they're selling off a lot of these golf courses because they just want to build housing and business parks and things like that um it'll be interesting because i know star trek once postulated that baseball was dead in the future so i wonder if golf where golf is well how else would we trap our goldfinger at his own game that's right <laughs> yeah exactly I mean, you know, I always like to ask about things that are of personal interest. Like when Aaron Gray was on, we talked about Battle of the Network Stars. Right. So I got to ask him, and I, I got to ask him, this is of personal interest. Um, Shaker Heights, I was obsessed with Project Greenlight. I don't know why. I mean, I don't know why I was so into it. But what is that like when, and maybe for you, it really was just about the film and you didn't feel all this marketing nonsense going on around you. But what is it like to be on a film where you're sort of like in the goldfish bowl, where it's all about just, you know, it's almost like a widget to sell this HBO show, which is really about the making of the movie, and you're trying to make like a great movie, but uh, this this whole thing is going on around you. Do you remember anything about that experience? Or is... I, I remember needing a job, right? Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, and I, I got it at the time, and I get why you like it. Is because an independent film production is sort of an exercise in Murphy's law. It is a slow moving train wreck. <laughs> And that makes for great TV matter. Um, But they were very, I got to say, the the crew shooting the documentary part of it was very respectful right from the top. They told us the rule is if you ever want us to get out of your line of vision or away from you, you have control. It's you're you're in charge. I think I only did that once. Um, uh, But then in the editing, you know, at the end of the day, they have to tell a story. Yeah. Right. Whether or not that story is accurate right. is another matter. And they did piss me off a couple of times. But um, all in all, it was a good job. I liked working with all those p- 
people. It was it was uh, Shia was a very interesting young man, and uh, just uh, you could just see this incredible, fast, fast moving brain, um, and uh, d- didn't surprise me at all that he continued to working uh, to work and develop. Always always very talented and um, interesting interesting guy. Well, you tell a story, and I don't know if it's apocryphal or not, so you tell me, but that when you were up for the Britney Spears movie, oh, Crossroads... Oh, let's not tell that story. <laughs> <laughs> I've told that story too many times. Okay, okay. Fair enough. Well, fair enough. Everybody in the world has asked me that, too. <laughs> sick of it. Well, th- we don't do that on this podcast, no, we so don't. let's move on to yeah. something more interesting. Um, and, and that is, you know... Um, uh, you know, being a working actor, you talk about you take certain gigs, you know, because it's money and it's working and stuff like that. You know, early in your career, you know, before you're the star of a TV show, you're, you're a guest. And that's always a hard. Do you think that sort of shaped when you did become number one on the call sheet? You, well, he you, wasn't the way number you, one. He was Captain Pike. <laughs> <laughs> did that. Hey, <laughs> It's still no Irishman. It's no Irishman. <laughs> so did, uh, did, did, did that shape the way that you... You know, as top of the call sheet would um, um, treat other people. You know, having been, but you weren't things like CSI Miami with David Caruso and the stories there are kind of legendary. That was fun. The- that was fun. Yeah. Um, to answer your question, uh, yes, I, I, I mean, I've done it. I've done it all. I've been a background. I've been a stand-in. I, you know, I've, I've been the lowest of the low, and I've been right at the top, and. Um, you 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 learn how we atta- we can attach sort of social structures to these things in ways that don't matter and then you can learn things that help um the group be better for instance um just learning how much of a difference it makes in your crew when you say good morning mm-hmm. to everyone compared to when you don't. Mm-hmm. Um, it makes a, a, a big difference. Um, when you are working uh, all night in very difficult circumstances, sometimes outside, and the background artists are busting their butts, uh, it helps to acknowledge that. Right. Uh, and everybody likes to be pr- appreciated. Um, everybody needs to be appreciated. Yeah, and, but then at the same time, learn having to learn how to balance that, pay attention to that, right. and yet balance that but you in a way a that allows do, right. you to be able to knuckle down and do what you have to do. Because right. um, being, as you said, number one of the, on the call sheet or, or the lead, whatever you call it, it is a it is a producer's position if you're going to take it seriously, right. um, but that's only one job, and you have another one, and it, it can be it can be easy to forget about doing both jobs, right. and so it's it, yeah it can be a bit of a a bit of a dance. But I'm glad that I went through those times as a younger actor, uh, being at the bottom of the totem pole mm-hmm. and learning. Learning, learning how watching. how it is and learning how, how that to, environment how is. How you'd like to be treated. Sure. You know, yeah. That was one of the things, you know, when I worked with uh, Frakes on Librarians, um, 
that you know he and, and you having worked with him as well on on Discovery um, always comes in with such a great disposition and treats <laughs> the crew and the cast and it's like a party. It's 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 yeah. you know it's all you know even no matter how stressful things get, he always keeps a sense of fun and joy de vivre. And it's because you know he started you know working you know as a working actor you know and just got shit on all the time and then you know finally becomes a lead on a show and 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 you know he when you you you, you know it's the whole cliche about you meet the same people on the way up that you meet on the way down and it's like treat people the way you want to be treated and i just love that he's great he, he just sent me a happy birthday text yesterday and i wrote yeah, happy back birthday. thank you and i wrote back stop stalking me <laughs> I always take the piss out of him on Twitter too. He always does these things where he'll take a picture of something and he'll post it and say, "Where am I?" And I always respond. <laughs> like he took a picture of the CN Tower in Toronto right. one day, and I responded. He says, "Where am I?" And I responded, "Middle age." <laughs> <laughs> Red alert! <laughs> that's great, and that's the way to deal with John. <laughs> that that's that's really funny. Um, I want to ask you, I mean, there's that old expression, um, I, I think it was Betty Davis, but I could be wrong, which was, you know, basically, it probably wasn't because given the line, it was, say your lines and don't bump into the furniture. And uh, that's one way that certain actors look at their job. With feature films, you get a script, you have an idea of what you're doing. But when you commit to a TV show, um, you see the pilot, you have an idea of what it's going to be, but then week to week, you have no idea what you signed on for. And so I'm wondering from your perspective, you know, is it say my lines and don't put them to the furniture or this is, you know, a character we're creating together and I need to be a part of this creative discussion and how do you approach that? That's a great question. I think that Betty Davis was trying to make a point um, about <clears throat> maybe, maybe the preciousness of American acting. Mm. Um, and some of the ways it's been misinterpreted coming out of some of our schools that are um, treat Stanislavski a bit uh, like a god rather than a young man who's just trying to figure it out himself at the time he wrote his method. Um, I like to say my responsibility is to show up on time uh, n knowing my lines and try to tell the truth. Right. As that's, I think that's a better way of, of putting it mm. because that last part is the hardest one. But you do have to figure that out. Um, I think that uh, I fell in love with long-form television with Hell on Wheels uh, because that's around the time that I, I sort of got it. I was like, oh, I, this is a tightrope that you get to walk in television that you don't get to do in any other medium. Right. You have a beginning you have a one script maybe two and a vague idea of where you want to get to at the end of of the season and this corporation hands you 60 million dollars and says go and somehow you guys gotta you gotta lock your heads together and figure out how to make your own jigsaw puzzle and then piece it together so that you have 10 or whatever episodes at exactly 40 seven minutes and 32 seconds on time at budget by the end of this period of time. Um, and I just loved that, that tightrope walk, um, particularly when I started getting brought into the room and asked my thoughts outside of the scene work. Um, being made a producer was not just a, a, a title. I was, they put me... <laughs> 
they put me to work. And I learned very quickly where my uh, strengths are and where my strengths are not. And um, primarily, I feel like I, I, and it was John Worth, the showrunner that that, yeah. that allowed me to do this and still the best collaboration I've had so far. I talked to him all that, talked to him yesterday. And um, you've worked with him. Oh, yes, I have. Terminator. Uh, yeah. Great guy. J.W. is awesome. Good leader, natural yeah. leader. Yep. Uh, started the showrunner's school. Yep. Uh, showrunner's boot camp. Yeah, showrunner's training program. And um, he, I I learned where, that I have something to offer in casting and in editorial. Uh, because John and I, really any actor and any showrunner, any writer, are going to see those two things from completely different points of view. And comparing your notes on those two things is going to help you make better decisions. With casting... There's type, and then there's the recognition of, of, and I think writers a lot of times see the type that was in their head, and actors are, I think, are maybe sometimes a little bit better at seeing the, the, the actors who, who, can, who are good at playing a quality, yes, but not necessarily acting. And that can, that's something that you have to look out for. In an editorial... You know, the way that, that we work is there There are times when the showrunner or the writer of that episode is in the writer's room and they can't be on the set. And what they've essentially sent us in script form, because it moves so fast, is a first, sometimes a second or third, and third draft, but it's still a blueprint, right. right? And it's not until you get into the environment with the other actors on that day, something's happened there's a storm came through. <laughs> right, <laughs> Who right. knows? You see the reality of yeah. the actual and situation. Then, but you know what needs to happen in that scene. And that is what informs the language of the camera, which is not scripted. Right. right? And you figure that out on the set with your DP and your director. Right. And then that gets sent to get processed the director gets his cut and he goes on to his next job and then the producer gets it to do his cut but the producer wasn't there so i would sometimes get scenes i would get sent john would send me his cut and i would get scenes where i i knew that we had done uh you know angles a b c d e f and g and it had pieced together the story of the scene had pieced together sort of that way. And what I would get back sometimes was a scene that was D, C, G, A, B, D again, right? right? And and it would be the conversation with John to, to tell him the story of making the scene happen that would make him go, oh, I see, okay, I get what you're saying. And then other times it would be like, we got to cut to commercial. <laughs> <laughs> we got to sell soap now. Yeah. Oh, I, that, I completely resonate with that. I mean, what you said about um, telling the truth to me is the is the key thing. I, I think, you know, when writing, that's the thing that, that we're trying to find. And, and sometimes, you know, I've had so many experiences, um, you know, showing up on the day with, with actors who uh, read a line, you know, perform a line in a way that um, I had never heard it in my head, mm-hmm. but opened up everything 
that was happening in the script. And in one case, like in the entire show, like I, just a line I thought was throwaway. An actor found a thing, mm-hmm. um, you know, which is, you know, I find there are there are some um, showrunners, directors uh, who I don't know that they're great about informing the actors about everything that's going to happen in the show. I know that sometimes they like to hold things. Um, well, sometimes they don't know. The that's very true. They that's very, very true. And they like so. to pretend that it's yeah, not. Or, right. or sometimes they're very right. open about it. Um, but in, in your experience, you know, have you have you had a lot of experiences, you know, with with writers or directors who have just been upfront and open, like you know, in Hell on Wheels? I'm sure that you know. Look, I know J Dub. He's got an idea of, of where he's going. He also knows that he's not going to get to everything that he wants to get to, and like mm-hmm. he can't control everything. And he's just going to tell the best story that he can tell, kind of as he goes. Um, but have you have you had that experience of really sitting down and and knowing exactly, you know, where your season was going to go or where your character was going to go and then be able to have that conversation uh, with the with the writer, with the director about how to arc that out or how you were going to play it. Um, yeah, I mean, more often than not, um, no, uh, simply because they don't know right. either. Um, and there are a lot of, as you said, there are a lot of possibilities. Hell on Wheels was a little bit different because we were doing a historical Western right. that we knew how it would end. It was just a matter of how to pace ourselves getting there and what we wanted, uh, what Cullen's emotional journey would be in parallel to that. Um, so there was a lot of lot of conversation there. Um, and yeah, you usually just have, I think, uh, a rather a rather vague... Um, idea and then and then things happen um, and I've been really I was I was really surprised how open the spirit and the creativity and the information was on Star Trek which is one of these shows that that has to be have a certain amount of security right for obvious reasons yeah um, I've been on other shows that that way overvalue their secrecy and their, right. you know, it's at times sometimes they're working for a fake CIA. Right. Um, right. Well, sometimes all of that is to give the producers a bigger sense of their, their worth. I think yeah. so. Yeah. Yeah. Not always. Not always. Or fear there, of there just some, being judged. Yeah. You right. do want to keep track of the right. the physical scripts and you want to have them watermarked and you want to know who's on your email chain and all yeah. of that. But there are times when it's a, yeah, I've been, I've been on, I've been on, I did a show one time, I won't say what, that it was so locked down that halfway through the season, I lost access to, they wouldn't put out physical scripts. Right. Um, and I lost access to the digital realm where the script where the script changes would live. Right. Never got it back. Yeah, and, you can't do your job. And yet we had... Uh, we didn't have we had we had free use of phones on the set <laughs> and a security team that would just let anybody drive onto the lot. Right. That's so absurd. You know, that kind of stuff that you run into. You're just like, well, when it when it inhibits the ability of the actual crew that is doing the job to actually do the job. That's a problem. Yeah, yeah. yeah. that's yeah. a major problem. Well, I want to ask you, you know, before we get to, to, to Star Trek and I want to ask you about the searchers, too which is a whole yeah. other thing. But um, uh, when you're doing something like The Inhumans, obviously 
you guys are killing yourselves. You're working hard. Mm-hmm. You know, there's, you're working in a vacuum. When any any show before it comes on, mm-hmm. you know, and and a lot of times you sort of think, you know, I, we're doing great work and we're really trying to make this special. And then, you know, with something like you get, you know, critically kind of terrible pushback, right? You know, just not a pleasant experience. What is that like? I mean, is it something where you're like? This is fair, or is this completely unfair? Um, you know, and and how does that then affect the work going forward, or does it not? Um, well, usual usually the work is already over by the time you're done. But that's right. So I don't. You don't have to worry too much. It's not like being in a in a play and the reviews come out on yeah. opening night and yeah. you have to just sort of like steer clear of it. Um, uh, yeah, I think a lot of times I'm in agreement with with criticism in terms of shouldering it. It's I I, I'm, I don't know. I'm pretty good about like moving on to the yeah yeah <laughs> next exactly. thing or, like, or that's done and not, now or not letting it. I don't feel it personally t- too much. Right. What has what what is uh, interesting and what has changed in the course of my career is when I first started. And you'd go to the Critics Association, which is, we should explain to listeners, is this... What TCA is, yeah. Yeah, it's a a a twice-a-year event where networks will have panels on all of their shows. And there's there's literally a room full of television critics that are there with laptops in front of them. For weeks. Working. And this is, yeah, they're doing this for weeks. And it's, and it's, and they're not there to be entertained. It's, Mm -hmm. it's a tough room. But, very jaded, But what started as a... A room full of journalists doing um, a job uh, for publications has turned into a mixed bag where you have those people, but now you also have, you know, the, the, I guess the, what is accepted as quote unquote journalist has become such a thin line between what's the traditional expectation of that. And now, more or less, bloggers with a lot of followers. Right. And so now, what you have is you have people who are there to cr- make a story happen in the room. And then, what you have is as soon as the day is over, within seconds, you have these people. Um, trolling and 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 tweeting and trying to make blow up a story in in social media it's a it's a very it's become a really interesting little um almost social media landmine and i'm not sure how much longer showrunners and networks are going to put up with how it's being handled you're totally preaching to the choir because when i was first when i was an entertainment journalist starting out um i was a member of tca many years ago and it was mostly people from local papers who were they wouldn't have access to the bigger stars and the showrunners and they you know for their column their daily column or whatever and most of the time they were fairly erudite and understood the medium and it wasn't very confrontational they weren't looking for like that gotcha moment right uh, it was just to have access because the guy from the Toledo Gazette you know could could you know have access that he wouldn't get otherwise because he basically it was the LA Times and you know the New York Times and the bigger outlets that would have access to the talent so now it's all these people. You know, from their parents' basement, who have these huge websites, who are exactly looking to make news and and turn a quote into an article that's going to get 
clicks, you know, it's clickbait mm-hmm. stuff. And mm-hmm. th- that whole organization, it's, it's completely changed. Well, you're starting to see networks skipping the TCA mm-hmm. just now, mm-hmm. you know. And that's a shame. I, 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 I personally feel that critics serve a very important function in the arts. Um, it's just that it's, I don't know, there's, a, there's not a much, as much an appreciation for real criticism anymore. And I've, I've had good criticism, I've had bad right. criticism. Yeah. Um, I think it's all fair, fair game, but I, I, don't, I don't think that, um, you know, I don't think that sort of trolling and sniping and trying to uh, make a story happen that's about you is journalism. Well, you know, they shine a light on shows that maybe wouldn't get attention. Otherwise, it's so important, especially in the landscape now where there's so many shows. Right. Uh, criticism is, is really important. Unfortunately, you know, they're not always right, you know, and, and it, it's certainly not. And a lot of what you, you, you know, you're talking about is a lot of people who don't who, who don't have a fundamental understanding of criticism where they don't know who Quinn Martin is or Roy Huggins or, or you know, Stephen Bochco. They don't understand the, me- the history of the medium. You know, they just know, uh, you know, I like what they this. like or I yeah. don't like. And, and, you know, whoever can say it the loudest and with the most shrill voice tends to get the attention. Yeah, right, it's yeah. it's really, um, but, but that's the nature of Christian, the Pauline Kales and the Vincent Cambys. And uh, there are very few of those. You know, even the mainstream critics like Siskel and Ebert don't, you know, who are the Siskel and Eberts of today? You know, they don't really exist. Um, you know, it's a bunch of people on websites who, you know, who aren't really getting paid, but they love the access because they right. feel, I can see Anson Mount at the TCA. I can, you know, be close. To, I can go to the uh, uh, CBS All Access party and, 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 and now we're buddies, right? <laughs> so um, I, get to, I get to hang out with Roger Ebert. Um, early in my career, he invited... Me in a film, my first film, to his. He, he used to uh, do this overlooked film festival. Yeah, sure. They think they still do it at yeah. uh, at the University of Illinois, yeah. and we got to go one year, and it was amazing. What was amazing the film? experience? It's called Tully, and it's the first film I ever shot. It didn't come out for a couple of years because of some sort of legal wranglings between the two distribution companies that were handling it, but it finally came out. Same year as Crossroads came out, mm-hmm. and but nobody saw it. <laughs> but I think it's uh, I think it's still out there. You can see it. There, I don't I don't know if it's on Netflix or where, but it's you know you can find it. And it's I'm still extremely proud of that as my first movie. It's a very it's a really beautiful film, and I get to work with Julianne Nicholson, um, who is still to this day one of the best actors I've ever share a screen with. Uh, she was amazing. You know, all the boys love Mandy Lane went through that too, where I remember it was yeah, finished and it sat on a shelf. Right. I saw it in Spain like two years before it ever came out. And uh, <laughs> that was, that was a Weinstein debacle. Um, yeah, he, cause he bought it at, um, Toronto and then, and then sold it off to somebody and who sold it off to somebody. And it took forever for that thing to come out. But yeah. Yeah. Well, I want to ask you because it's funny, you know, if they're going to remake The Searchers today, he would not be the Jeff Hunter role. He would be the John Wayne role, right? But so, it would be ironic if he were the Jeff Hunter role. No, but that was such a thankless role, that Jeff Hunter role. <laughs> in the it's not, it's like he's, he's much better than that. So I want to, <laughs> so I want to ask you, well, let's, let's talk about, you know, discovery. And this may be some ground that, that was tread before, but, you know, was this an offer situation or did you have to audition for what it? What was? Uh, in the case of playing uh, uh, Captain Pike. Oh, um, okay. How did this happen? All right. So. 
I'd been talking to them actually about Captain Lorca mm. before the f- first season, and uh, they very wisely hired Jason Isaacs. And then, so when they were getting geared up for uh, for season two, they called back and said, "Hey, there's this other captain called Captain Parker that you might be right for." I <laughs> uh, see. It's just. <laughs> Secretly thought to myself, that's not a, it's a very boring name of a captain. <laughs> and there's like, were you? Would you mind putting yourself on tape for a couple of scenes? I was like, yeah, of course. So my wife recorded me and did the off-camera lines. You know, camera in one hand, mm. sheets in the other. She played Mr. Sloth. <laughs> <laughs> and, Number um, two. <laughs> and uh, the and then the next day they called and said, okay, we let's do it. And it's actually Captain Pike. Um. And I just, I was so glad they didn't cast me as Lorca. (laughs) (laughs) Or Captain Parker. Because I I knew exactly what it meant. I was like, wow, that's this, that's such a cool idea. And I can't believe I get to play a Starfleet captain, man. That was my make-believe game when I was like eight years old. It's incredible. I mean, that's, and and it's great because, you know, you talk to a lot of people where it's like, um, you know, I didn't really watch Star Trek. I've heard of it. Obviously, it's in the popular culture. You know, I realize what a, a zeitgeist show it is. But, you know, for someone who actually grew up on the show and loves Star Trek, there's something extra special, I would think, about, you know, besides paying the mortgage, you know, being in Star Trek, being in, you know. It's so, it's so bizarre to me. It's so surreal to me. It's nothing that I even had on my bucket list as an actor, because it just never occurred to me that it would ever happen. It just, it was so out of left field that, um, I mean, it, it's to this day, it's surreal. Yeah. And I, I'll say, you know, regard, you know, like politics, Star Trek fans are, are a wily bunch, you know, in terms very of, wily. you know, and nobody agrees on anything. And, and there's, it, it can be very vitriolic on one hand or, or, or you know, beyond passionate on, on, on another it seems if there's one thing that unites, I wouldn't say the haters and the lovers, is your performance as Captain oh, Pike. And you. I'm not saying it because you're wrong. I think that's a clearly a oh. fact that, you, you know, whether people love the show or, or aren't fans of the show, uh, you, you know, they, they, they love you and your, your character. What is it about this character of Captain Pike, who is a bit of a sad sack in the original cage? Very brooding. Uh, Maybe very brooding. Yeah, right. that, yeah. you know, yet Bruce Greenwood plays him in the J.J. film, one of the more beloved characters. You come along and just you know, blow the doors off of this, and you know, people clamoring for a Captain Pike TV show, and more of you, and how the show really found itself the second season. What is it about that character? Well, I like to say that um, Jeffrey Hunter and I were playing different Pikes, he was playing the first act Pike, which was a much younger, um, more self-possessed um, guy who's trying to figure out what it's all about, what, he, what his place is in, in the world. Mm. And I get to play the, the, the product of that search, uh, play the second act Pike, who is more firmly established in his decision to be in Starfleet. It's settled. This is where I function best. And, you know, I get to I get to play that bridge to the to the third act pike, which was um, I I never thought when I started that we would there be any way to do that until we came to episode 12 and it just Mm -hmm. blew me away. Um, Yeah, it was um, I, I thought it I thought it actually 
in a lot of ways, that season helped to flesh out um, a character that was... Now, when, when I think back to how um, valued he is as a character, how worshipped he is as a Star, a Star Trek character, it's amazing how little we knew right. Right. <laughs> about Pike. Right. Um, in a, in a, well, I what, what we knew about him yeah. was from the original series and Spock's devotion to him. Yeah. Because we'd already known Spock and we knew what he valued and that he valued quality. Mm -hmm. And for him to sacrifice so much in the menagerie mm -hmm. told us that Pike was a valued person mm -hmm. and that he was worthy of our admiration. That's a great point. That's a great point. Now, how great is Ethan Pack? Yeah, he's you he's know, really good. He's like, really what a, good. And I, 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 compare, I I have to say, compared to to the shoes he had to fill, sure. mine were not that <laughs> big. <laughs> <laughs> there was much less to go on for me, yeah. and he he had to live up to a, a tremendous history. Absolutely. Uh, to that character, and, and and he, I think he just knocked it out of the park. Well, I thought I, it was it was interesting just kind of watching your performance on that show in the context of. All the other characters, even putting um, Jeffrey Hunter aside, right? Um, that that your Captain Pike brought a couple of things to the show. N number one, there was a there was an optimism that did not exist on the show before, and that I think that Pike embodied. That I thought was very interesting, even though obviously there were depths to that character. Um, and I think also this very steadfast code. Right in a in a show where a lot of the characters are are stumbling around looking for one, um, Pike, your Pike always felt very uncompromising to me in a in a very good way, um, yet tough. And it was just it was interesting. It was like um, you know when you kind of take a dime and you put it on black velvet as a contrast enhancer. It was just Captain Pike as he was portrayed in Discovery kind of became a, kind of a contrast enhancer mm -hmm. for some of the other characters. And I thought. Um, helped me to see them differently. Mm -hmm. You know, what did you find when you know you really started working with them? You really started getting into the into the scenes, like with these characters, you know, who had spent what sixteen previous episodes getting themselves established, kind of putting themselves into a universe that at times was literally dark. Um, mm -hmm. And and you're this guy, like like what was that? What was that process like of kind of finding your relationship with them as, as characters and and how you know they dealt with you? Well, um, the writing was was pretty good. Um, it was pretty clear at all times what the intention was from the writers' room with the character. Uh, Sinequa Martin Green helped me a lot as well. At at one at a couple of points w warned me that I was getting I was getting pulled into the dark direction of his he was becoming a little bit too deliberate and that that Pike has to play against that mm. in order to fill, fulfill the role that he's there for and she was absolutely right um, it was uh, a big change from going from Colin Bohannon to mm -hmm. Captain mm -hmm. Pike and yet Star Trek and is Black Bolt you know, yeah, yeah. very, very big change. I mean, yet Star, Star Trek is wagon train to the stars. You know, Gene Roddenberry originally called it wagon train. And here it is, you know, the the, the, the DNA of Star Trek isn't a Western, you know. And, yeah. yeah. You know, and, and the thing is, is that your character, 
you know, one thing I think people were hungry for in Star Trek is that optimism, particularly in the times that we live, which are so mm-hmm. cynical and dark and for obvious reasons. Um, but, uh, you know, and your character brings back that sense of optimism, a little bit of joy de vivre, like, I'm mm-hmm. happy to be here in space, which is sort of ironic because Jeff Hunter wasn't, you know, he wanted to retire. <laughs> he was kind of like, I'm done with this. But, you know, that sense of fun and that 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 kind of uh, almost Shatner-esque uh, Charisma and 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 a leader that you want to follow and and, and it it seems like it injected some life into into the show. But I, I wonder from from your perspective, was that something that you noticed? I think it's a very astute comment that Sonequa made, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also, did you look at Jeff Hunter's work at all, or did you just have to go off for your purposes? Was it better to go off what was written on the page? No, right? yeah, no. I felt I had the the freedom to make my own pie because it was clearly such a, into such a different place in his life you know I, we're, we're different people yeah. at different times in our life um, I, di- I, I do agree with you about the the importance of optimism in the Star Trek universe and that's my favorite quote by Gene Roddenberry is that there is some basic human need in that there is a tomorrow right. you know and, I, there, and he's right there's something he hit on there that, that I think is 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 very true but the i don't think it can be that all the time i think that there is a counterbalance to that especially in the genre of science fiction because i believe science fiction is born out of fundamentally out of angst that's the reason the americans dominated the science fiction landscape for so long is because we were the leaders of the free world and the scientific world and we were we as a culture felt this responsibility of what are we going to do it? Where are we, where are we actually taking these things? <laughs> this, well, what are we doing with this American experiment? Where is this going to go? And now it's, I think it's no mistake that you're seeing a huge, uh, evolution in science fiction coming out of China for the same exact reasons. Um, so I think it's, it's both, if there's a light and a dark side to, to to track that's it's it's somewhere in there mm-hmm. well you have a quote and i don't know what point in your career you said this and i don't even know if you did it could be the internet you know like, i think about abraham <laughs> yeah. lincoln said but never you, trust anything you read on the internet yeah exactly so i'm an enemy of exposition i hope there's no need to overstate now star trek of course is famous for its exposition particularly the later shows with a lot of techno babble mm-hmm. and attempting to explain how much did you find uh, you know wanting to part part pare things down or was it you know did it live in a place you were comfortable well, with I, or i um i do i did say that and i i do believe that the majority of film and television is overwritten mm-hmm. um i think we overwrite i think david mamet wrote a very famous memo to his writers mm-hmm. on the unit that got yeah. out yeah. Yeah. about um providing information and how that's the death right. of great TV. Information, yes. Yeah. Yes. That's, not scenes, they're information. Right. You're talking right. about information? Yeah, I'm fucking right. talking about information. You're talking about information. Information. Um, I know, that's what you said. But I think it's important to keep keep in mind that when I said that, I was also in the middle of a Western mm-hmm. um, at battle on that very subject. <laughs> <laughs> right. I was absolutely determined to to cut as much dialogue as I as I could and until we found our our rhythm with it 
because um, I think that that silence is more important to Western than it is to just about mm-hmm. any drama except maybe horror. Um, Star Trek is a is a different animal in so many ways. They're almost diametrically opposed. Uh, you know, the Helen Wheels is, was all day's exterior. Star Trek is all day's interior. Yeah, yeah. Right. <laughs> um, and you're it's harder to shoot, actually, strangely enough. Star Trek, because what you realize when you're we start doing Star Trek is you realize that Star Trek is really just a series of scenes and little rooms and hallways. Mm-hmm. And because it's an action adventure, you got to find a way to liven that up. And that takes time and work and and in kind of ingenuity and a pressure put on the camera team that you don't normally have in other situations. So um I'm I'm kind of okay to be a little bit more of a hired gun on a much more technical show. There there are times where I will come to the set on Star Trek and there's uh, the director and the camera team have already worked out where every actor is going to be at every moment. Mm-hmm. Any other show, I would lose my crap if they in that situation <laughs> yeah i would i would things would come to a quick halt <laughs> if that had ever happened on hell on wheels but in in star trek it's just like you gotta understand where you fit in the cog of this particular machine and um and so i don't know if that actually is no no it does but. it does and i would ask you kind of what are some of your touchstones personally in terms of Movies and television, maybe the things you grew up on or influences on you, shows that resonate. Obviously, I assume you're a fan of westerns. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. You know, what are some of your what are your, some of your favorites? Um, well, uh, when I where I grew up, we grew up. We had um, the local ABC, NBC, CBS affiliates. We had PBS, and we had the local UHF channel, mm-hmm. public access, and. On Sunday afternoons, after church or hunting, whichever one you're doing, uh, you would have, on the UHF channel, you'd always have a double header of two westerns mm-hmm. or two martial arts films, mm-hmm. which are essentially, thematically, the, the same, same thing. thing. Right. And I would just watch those every single Sunday. And I and there were a, a lot of them were the ones who had been that had been packaged and sold into syndication right. by MCA and you know the, 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 the literally these networks would get or these local th- affiliates would get sold a block of old westerns and they wouldn't be they wouldn't know they wouldn't allow them to know what was in the package oh my god in other words <laughs> right? Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. you got 22 films from the great right. universal library <laughs> um, and so i i grew up playing cowboys and indians and i grew up playing star trek because right. my mother also introduced me to Star Trek. Who did you play in Star Trek? Kirk. We would Spock? we would we would <laughs> trade we would trade out. Oh, okay. Who you know different, but we never had a Nohura because the girls would never play with us. <laughs> Imagine that. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it's just sort of crazy that I've gotten to I've 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 I'm still doing that. Right. You know, and, uh, on a much higher level, and. Uh, I just turned in my most. Re- I, I write articles every now and then for Cowboys and Indians magazine. I just turned in a draft of something on John Wayne mm-hmm. um, that I'm really excited to see published. See uh, what I'm saying? Right. We <laughs> make the searchers right. right there. Right now, when you when you were first brought on to Discovery, um, it's 
sort of been semi-documented that there was, during the second season, there was a lot of sort of turnaround in the writer's room um, as the show progressed. How did that change your character at all, or did it? You know, um, the, the, the writer's room was here mm-hmm. in, in Los Angeles, and we were in Toronto. Right. And both, both teams are working so quickly and intensely when you're in production mm-hmm. that and, and people that work on television shows and, and, in, and in the Star Trek world and CBS All Access specifically, there is such a level of professionalism that I I knew of no friction. Just just at, in you know. just in basis of where you thought the character was going to go at the beginning of the uh, of the series. I, I didn't know anywhere the oh, character okay. was going to go <laughs> except that uh, you just he go was going to survive. <laughs> right. right, right. <laughs> I didn't know really anything. I I, I trusted that Alex. Um, Alex Kurtzman would would give me the information that I needed if I needed it, and and the the showrunners as well and Heather, um, uh, and no, I, I, there was really no bump in the road as far as my from my perspective. Right. Yeah. I have to ask because you you talk about you're playing dress up and it's it's funny. I remember on Librarians, Frakes was directing an episode and the AD was talking about how she used to play. Uh, uh, World War, you know, uh, Army, you mm-hmm. know, with her friends growing up. But I said, well, it's not like anybody here played Star Trek when they were growing up. Is that would be embarrassing to admit in front of you, John. And uh, <laughs> so I want to ask you, knowing that you had this experience, when you walk under the bridge in the penultimate episode of Discovery Season 2 in the yellow tunic and mm-hmm. uh, there's Spock standing there and there's Rebecca playing number one and you're on the bridge of the Enterprise. Uh, I mean, for a second... The actor in you must vanish. The little kid is there for a minute. I would think. Uh, was that the case at all for you? Yeah. You. You. you I have to sort of paint the picture for you, um, because in most film sets, one or two or three walls or the ceiling are missing because you have to. Um, they have to be sets that you can break down so you can fit in cameras and lights and. and sure all of that um it and if you ever feel like completely surrounded by a mise-en-scene it's usually something that's on location outside you know like the first time i was shooting tully i was shooting the first time i was acting in a Mm cornfield you know and i realized wow you can't build this on a stage (laughs) well that, that almost never happens in a studio but in on the bridge scenes those sets are so 360. Mm-hmm. Um, pretty much everything but the view screen is is functional set. Right. So and, you're surrounded by it. And yeah. And it's so brightly lit. And we're all in our uniform that I remember walking up to Ethan and going, do you kind of feel like you're in the screen right now <laughs> do you feel like you're in star trek and he's like yeah it's crazy it was like i'm in the tv show like i'm not in the not i'm not in the, the, the i'm not on the, the show i'm in, in the ship star yeah. trek right yeah. now <laughs> it was really a weird experience <laughs> yeah galaxy quest moments yeah. um so 
you know, a lot of people have talked about, you know, they, they really fell in love with those characters and would love to see more of them, uh, you know, in a future spinoff or series. And you revisit the character for short treks, which I wonder, w- was that an interesting, you know, uh, being the short form versus the long form and having directed yeah. and written your own short films? I wonder, you know, what was yeah. that like for you? I'm just going to lean down here and get some more of the branded beverage I can't. <laughs> <laughs> We won't tell anybody. Your, your secret is safe with us. The show brought to you by Coca-Cola. No. By cocaine. <laughs> no. That was, if we were doing the show in the right. 50s, it would be. Right. By, um, by hot cocoa. Yeah. I First of all, I loved the idea for the, the short tracks uh, as, a, as a way of uh, keeping the fans involved in a, in a time when we're not doing 22 or 24 episodes right. a year. Uh, and we're making these these short orders and people have to wait for so long. I thought it was a very smart thing to do. And then when I saw it aired and I realized we're on a it's on a streaming platform that doesn't have to deal with network programming, I was like, short films can start to be a thing now. Mm-hmm. And I, I love short. I've done a lot of short films. I've directed short films. I'm a big fan of the medium. Um, that was very exciting to me. And I'd like to see more television dabble in smaller stories. Tomorrow so, we're going to read uh, Anson Mountstein's huge Quibi deal right. with Jeffrey Katzen. <laughs> it's, it's interesting that you say that because in the last week or two I was posting something and um, I had just this moment where I realized, oh, I'm you know doing this show on uh, on a streaming service that rhymes with Netflix. Yeah. And uh, and, you know, uh, on the show, the, the episodes are, you know, ultimately about 25 minutes long. There are generally like A stories and B stories, that kind of thing. And as we were originally structuring them, I was structuring everything as though I were writing broadcast. And there are a lot of good reasons to do that. It gives you structural, you know, pinnings to kind of to write to and make sure that you're kind of getting it where you need it to go. But as I was recutting an episode, I realized that... The distinctions are almost silly. Like I could take, for the most part, I could take entire stories that I had split apart in the script and I could just connect them together and just give the audience almost a sequence of short films. And as long as, you know, the those little stories were talking to each other properly, right? Or if they were intercut, it was because they were talking to each other thematically mm-hmm. or emotionally. Right. Um, that... I didn't really have to be beholden to those structural requirements, and I and I'm mm-hmm. just and I think I agree that I think um, we're going to go from a place where skip intro happens, you know, every half hour, every hour to I love you're skip. kind of you skip love skip skip he's intro. Great. He's a totally he's actually my lawyer. <laughs> um, we're going to go to a place where I think that that is going to be how we're consuming this stuff, and not like not in a quibby sense either because I don't even know what the hell Quibi is. I mean, really, why do you call it Quibi? Like, what? what's that know. about? Don't ask me. I'm not on the Quibi bandwagon. Yeah, I mean... It's like big, they haven't what's offered the me big a video yet? app that all the kids are using now? Oh, is TikTok. That... Yeah, TikTok. Right. Yeah, yeah, I was having a conversation with a friend last night who was saying she has two teenage daughters and she was saying they don't watch TV. Right. I watch TV. They will, they'll watch TV because I'm watching it and they want to do something with me, but left on to their own devices, they're watching TikTok and they're walking, watching Snapchat, and that's yeah. it. And YouTube. I'm like, oh, God. Yeah, I know. It's terrifying. Oh, no. You wonder. I mean, it's the same thing about, you know, a lot of, you know, not my kids, because they're going to see Breakfast at Tiffany's and <laughs> what's fun in Hollywood, but, right. you know, a lot of kids, they don't even want to go to the movies, you know. Uh, they, 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 you know, they 
it's not even about watching movies on their phones. They're just not interested. The paradigm is changing so quickly. And but I, some, where is that going to leave us? Somehow, though, I, I, I do think that uh, storytelling, story, story the, you know, the, the, act of the Joseph stories, Campbell of yes, it all, yeah. right. the, the mythology, right. the existence of mythology. There's something innately human that is going to always want to get together around the campfire mm-hmm. together and listen to a story told. There's something we in that that we need to um, ward off the spirits and the darkness behind us, you know. See, and that was the host of The Well talking. Right. All of a sudden, he just lifted up the show, <laughs> made it very erudite, he dropped us. Joseph Campbell. But I'm also from a long line of Southern bullshitters. So <laughs> there is that. Uh, 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 uh. Well, I know we, we got to wrap things up, so I'm going to ask. I, I just, oh, wait, let, me, let me mention one more thing. Um, if anyone from Marvel is watching us right now, we found your Mr. Fantastic. <laughs> if right. it'll work for Marvel again. If, right. <laughs> yeah, if you work for Marvel. And that's a different Marvel anyway. I right, mean, that's that, true. That Marvel... Are they doing the film or are they... They're, sure they're starting I something. I saw something around the time that... Sorry. It's okay. Uh, around the time that, that there was news of that coming out, there was also... I saw somewhere somebody reported that... They, Keanu Reeves had gone in for a meeting. They haven't cast him yet. No. Okay. No, they keep talking about That's John Krasinski. I, I, <laughs> I, I, I totally agree. Yeah. And now that you say it. Yeah. I mean, I was on the John B- B- Wayne uh, Searchers remake bandwagon, <laughs> but, you know, I'm actually this Mr. Fantastic in Marvel. Kevin Feige, we know you're a Star Trek fan. Right. Love Kevin, by the way. Yeah. Um, there, there he sits. There he sits. Mr. Fantastic. Waiting. He seems reasonably fantastic to me, <laughs> Commander. <laughs> that would be fun. That would be great. And I, look, I, when you ask, you know, the, all the talk of, you know, whether there would be future installments, a lot of times you read an actor and they say, you know, if they bring it to me, I'll consider it, you know, and most of the time it's like, <laughs> you'll consider it. You know what I also keep getting? You know I, but in your case, you said a quote, and when it, and you said, you know, there have to be creative conversations before I agree. And I believed you. Yeah. You know, and it, because that's the kind of seems the kind of actor in the way you treat your career. It's not just about the paycheck that there it is about the work. And oh, I want to get paid. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but there has to be an agreement of what the goal is. Right. Yeah. You know, but you know, the other thing, the other thing that people keep telling me that I should play the live action version of Archer. Dude. <laughs> yeah. That's great. I can see that Plus too. Was about five gummy bears. <laughs> I'm not watching that on my iPhone. I'm paying to go see yeah. that movie. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so, favorite movie, favorite TV show. Oh, that is such a Quickly. unfair, <laughs> such an unfair question. I know. We're, Current we're, or in history? In, his, in history. history. I think the greatest movie ever made is the one that, that birthed the long-form narrative, which is City Lights by Charlie Chaplin. Fantastic. Wow. Okay. Also a movie that he wrote, starred in, directed, wrote, starred in, directed, <laughs> composed, yeah. and edited. Yeah. You know. Um, he was a major jerk. <laughs> He's like a quintuple threat. What the yeah. um, I know we always talk about Orson Welles, but it's like, how do you ignore Chaplin? I mean, it, it, unbelievable. Wells or Buster did. Keaton. <laughs> yeah. Wells yeah, yeah, Wells did. Yeah, My right. favorite TV show of all time is probably Breaking Bad. Yeah. Oh. yeah. I just started watching the new season of, of Better Call Saul. Yeah. I'm tr- I, love I, I, I loved the first two seasons, and then um, my. I, I need to get my wife to watch them so that we can that watch works. the rest of it together. Yeah. <laughs> we just finished Game of Thrones. We watched it all. 
Well, people forget you're great. away so right. long, you know, and it's like, and especially when your wife's like, oh, we got to watch this together. It's like, you're not going to, and you come home, the last oh. thing you want to do after working these crazy hours is to be watching oh, I have an TV. outstanding, this is what we do when I'm on the road. We, we will, we buy and watch each episode of The Bachelor together. <laughs> <laughs> Which like I'm perfectly there. willing to admit at this point in my life that I will watch The Bachelor, but only with my wife. Right. Um, and it is fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> Talk about a slow-moving train wreck. Oh my Guaranteed. Oh my that is crazy. And, I, you know, the hours you work, I mean, to think that they used to do 26 hours of this. Now, they didn't do as much coverage. And they didn't do, do what we you talked about earlier. It's a wonder. But, but it's insane. And I mean, you're still the, the the you know the amount of work. I can't imagine what it's like for you at the end of the season. You know how you know how exhausting it must be. You know after that. Yeah. You know because it's the the amount of money that's spent on any episode of Discovery is more than a lot of feature films. It's yes. really more than most any other show on television. Yeah, it's an expensive show. <laughs> yeah. So I mean, it's 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 crazy. So. Uh, but it's been a delight having you on the show, Thanks and, for having and me. you yeah. should catch up on Better Call Saul when you have a free moment because it's it's <laughs> I you know, I just I think it's great. But Breaking Bad, yeah, it's hard to argue one of the great. But nobody's gonna be playing that as kids, I don't think. Oh, but I would love up. for them to to play that as kids, right? It's like I want to see my toddlers <laughs> running around going, like, "I'm the one who knocks." Although I mean, my, oh. <laughs> my my favorite though was when when uh, toy meth lab, right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Brian I Cranston won. dressed up as Walter White, and that's how he looked at the dealers' room at Comic Con, right? Right. Because he dressed up as his character. Right. And, and he cosplayed and, himself. He cosplayed himself. That's genius. Which is, you know, uh, remarkable. How do you like these whole, the convention world, the, all that stuff? They're, they're, they're great. I mean, there's, you know, there's some that are um, crazier than others. Yeah, right. <laughs> mm. <laughs> but fundamentally, at the end of the day, it's just a line of people wanting to walk up and pat you on the back. Right. <laughs> you know, right. like, and what actor doesn't love that? <laughs> yeah, and I do a, quite a few of them with Ethan. And sure. we have a we have a good time. Um, and I've met some really cool people in the Star Trek family. That's great. That's great. And you can banter back and forth. Yeah. And, and then Ethan should do Gentleman's Agreement remake. No? No. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Anyway, thank you so much, Anson. It was great to have our, our first uh, Star Trek captain mm-hmm. on the show. And, and then we got to talk about... You know, so much more than just Star Trek. Uh, you know, Anson's had a great career, and I think uh, it's only going to continue. So um, it's it's really great to have From you on the show. From your mouth to God's ears. <laughs> yeah, and uh, I want to thank you, our audience, for uh, joining us here on Inglorious Trexperts. If you're a fan of the podcast, you may want to check out Electric Surge's other podcasts, like The 430 Movie every Friday, Best Movies Never Made every other Monday, The Rebel and Rogue, a Star Wars podcast every Tuesday, and Two on Who, the new Doctor Who podcast on Thursdays. You can also watch video podcasts of all your favorite Electric Surge podcasts on Electric Now. Um, so check that out. And you should listen to The Well, You should listen available to wherever you listen to podcasts. Um, and uh, I'm not just saying that because Anson's here. It's actually really... It's great. It's a great yeah, podcast. If you need to find it, we're on Twitter, we're on Instagram, or you can just type my name into the Apple search engine and you'll see it. And they have a much more impressive Facebook page than we do, so I will tell you that as well. <laughs> uh, if you've enjoyed this podcast, please rate us five stars on Apple Podcasts. It really uh, helps bring new listeners to the not show. Not four, not three. Definitely, five, five. definitely not. 
Definitely one not. One is right out. <laughs> we got to go with the five. Five is the magic number, as they said on Schoolhouse Rock. Finally, a very special thanks to uh, Bill Ritter, who makes this sound so great every week, and everyone here at Electric Surge, including our producer, Natalie Miscali. Thank you, Natalie. And, of course, Dean Devlin, without whom the show would not be possible. You know who you shouldn't thank? Who should I not thank? Me. You shouldn't thank me, Mark. Ashley, thank you for being with us again this week. <laughs> it was a pleasure and a delight, as always, having as you on always. the show. I'd like thank to thank my co-host, Darren Docterman, always wonderful Thanks, Mark. and insightful. And uh, we'll see you next week. <laughs> so keep on trekking in Gloriously, of course. <laughs> there you go. Engage. Oh, yeah. Right. <laughs> you, you forgot the ending. This show was produced by Dean Devlin and Mark A. Altman and is an Electric Surge Network production.